We, I, am going to talk about sex and work this morning. Why are these two subjects colliding together in a worship service? Well, because we're studying the Bible. We're going through 1 Thessalonians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of new Christians who lived in the Greek city of Thessalonica. And we are now in chapter 4 of this letter, where Paul talks to these believers about their sexual behavior and their approach to work. Now before you say, and I know you've already said it in your head, this does not relate to me. I retired from both of these things a long time ago. But there are truths here that apply to all of us in one way or another. Why is that? Well, sex and work are two of the most common places where we look for identity and self-worth. And what do I mean by that? Well, we might use sex as a primary means of fulfillment, approval, self-esteem. The same is true of work. We might use vocation to establish our identity, our purpose, our self-worth. We might search for supreme satisfaction and value in a career. Well, this leads to problems, surely. Because as important as sex and work are, we will never find ultimate fulfillment in either of them. And yet, because uh, these are two of the most common places where people try to find meaning, approval, contentment, purpose, identity, so it's no accident that we find them both addressed together here in 1 Thessalonians 4. It begins this way, verse 1, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Remember, these are new Christians. Paul wasn't able to stay with them for very long, but during the time he was there, he taught them how to live, and now that they belonged to Jesus, there were behaviors they needed to avoid and behaviors they needed to embrace. Now, ethical living... Morality will never make you a Christian, no matter how ethical and moral you are. But when you are a Christian, your ethics and your morals will change by the Spirit's power and you will please God. Now, before we talk specifically about work and sex, I want you to see two general life principles. One that pleases God and one that doesn't. And these principles are summed up with two words, flesh and spirit. And when you operate your life according to the flesh, you won't please God. When you operate your life according to the Spirit, God is pleased. What does that mean? Well, imagine bringing home a tiger as a pet. As the tiger grows, you just let him, if you do, just let him what comes naturally. You're going to have some challenges. His natural inclination is to hunt and kill. He's going to sharpen his claws on your furniture. He's going to mark your house as his territory, if you know what I mean. You might wake up in the middle of the night and find him sitting on your bed salivating. He's going to bring home pieces of the mailman. In other words, he's living according to the flesh, and it won't please you. 
But what if you trained him? What if you raised him to control his natural instincts and behave differently? Maybe, maybe you could get him to accompany you on your morning run. Maybe he would keep the pests out of your garden. Maybe he could retrieve errant golf balls. Maybe he could frighten away Jehovah's Witnesses. Maybe you could teach him to bring you the mail instead of the mailman. In other words, he could live to please you instead of himself. Therefore, he would be living in spirit, in a sense, rather than flesh. Now, Paul talks about this life principle in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. You see, our natural inclination is not to please God. Our instincts, our appetites are aimed in a direction of self-satisfaction, of gratification, of indulgence. That's our sin nature. That's how we're born. That's the life principle in each one of us. And when we let our tigerness loose, when we follow our flesh, the result won't please God. When our tiger nature is changed, and we're not dominated by our impulses, but by the Spirit of God who lives in us, then God is pleased. Now, to a greater or lesser degree, apart from Christ, we all live in the flesh. It's only through faith in Jesus that we have the power of the Holy Spirit operating within us. And the Spirit of God lives within those who, through trust in Christ's death on the cross for our sin, his bodily resurrection from the dead, uh, they are the ones who are reborn as God's children. And through Jesus, we become new creations, enabled to live in a way that pleases God, with the Holy Spirit living within us. And therefore, that Holy Spirit, he convicts us when we are doing wrong, and he prompts us to do what is right, and empowers us to say no to sin. Now, that doesn't mean we'll live perfectly. That doesn't mean that we'll listen every time the Holy Spirit prompts us. Uh, it, it means that we have the power to follow God, and when we fail, when that tiger snarls and takes a bite out of the neighbor or our spouse, the Spirit of God urges us to confess to turn away from our sinful reactions and inclinations and to receive the forgiveness of God. And by his grace, through the blood of Jesus, God forgives his children as they confess every single time. Now, these Thessalonian Christians had believed, and they were living according to the Spirit. Paul says so. But he encourages them, as he instructed them before how to live to please God, he says, I want you to do this more and more. And so, to increase their holiness of life, knowing that this is what pleased God. So there are two specific areas that he addresses here. And the first one is sex. Verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And you say, well, it's pretty difficult in our day to avoid sexual immorality. You look at our culture. Well, I want you to understand that I'm not sure it's that much different or much more difficult in our day than it was in that culture. We do have unique challenges. There's no question about it. But the early Christians in Greek culture had it pretty rough. Immorality was expected. Promiscuity, prostitution, all kinds of perversion were very much a part of that culture. The worship of gods and goddesses such as Aphrodite and Kabiris and Dionysus actually involved sexual activity. And the time of the Caesars was sexuality gone wild. According to the history of European 
morals, quote, immorality was probably never more extravagant or uncontrolled than during this period, unquote. So these new Christians faced an immoral culture. And still, Paul said, it's God's will that you avoid this behavior. Now that word translated sexual immorality is pornea. He says, run away from pornea. What is pornea? It's every type of sexual behavior outside of heterosexual marriage. So that's adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, bestiality, incest. And Paul says, avoid, run away, literally. Put space between yourself and pornea. Now many in the Thessalonian church had an immoral past. They had premarital sexual encounters. They had homosexual experiences. They involved in prostitution in one way or another or infidelity. And Paul reminded them, it's God's will, now that you are his people and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, to run away from continued involvement in that behavior. Well, why should God's people avoid sexual immorality? Three reasons Paul gives. One is, it's a sign that I don't know God. Verse 4. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. So the message is not to let your sex drive control your life if you belong to Jesus, running only on impulse and desires how those without God behave. Now, while morality does not guarantee that you know God, immorality is some indication that you don't know him. Now, studies show and there's an increasing number of these, that sexually transmitted infections have more than doubled in the past 10 years in the United States among adults 65 years and older. New trend. Psychology Today published an article called Baby Boomers Gone Wild. (laughs) And it mentioned, as many articles do, retirement communities as hotbeds of sexual activity. Places like the villages in Florida have a reputation of swinging lifestyles and, of course, angry, explosive politics, too. Which explains why, when friends of mine discovered that I was moving here, I got asked several questions. Uh, One of my pastor friends said, is it true? I said, is what true? He says, are there sex parties? I said, I don't know, and they're certainly not going to invite me. Now, those who don't know God might behave in that way. But that must not be true of Christ followers, Paul says. He gives another reason, in addition to it's a sign I don't know God. The second reason to avoid sexual immorality is that it defrauds somebody else, verse 6. In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you before and warned you before. See, you exploit someone, you defraud them through sexual relationships outside of God's boundaries. Well, how? Well, to have sex outside of marriage cheats your spouse or the spouse of the other person or the one you might marry or the one they might marry. And so when you have sex outside the bounds of marriage, you steal what isn't yours. You're depriving a spouse, present or future. You're, not, uh, you're cheating another person. Uh, John Piper says, when we sin sexually, we're not seeking the highest good of others, not the person we sin with, nor the person in the pornography. We're using people instead of loving them. Now, God declares this important. 
If immorality is the pattern of your life, there are consequences. If you are unrepentant and persist in immorality, you can't have assurance that you actually belong to Jesus. Willfully sinning and refusing to repent is not the mark of a believer, but an unbeliever. Recognizing our sins, confessing them, turning from them, receiving forgiveness is the mark of one who believes. So the first reason is it's a sign I don't know God. The second one is it defrauds someone else. And third, it rejects God's purpose for me. Sexual immorality rejects God's purpose for me. Verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So to consider sexual sin unimportant, as many in our culture do, let alone as many in the church do, uh, as I've talked to them through the years, uh, that disregards God. Now please hear me say this. Please, please, please hear me say this. Sexual sin is not any more offensive to God than greed or anger or selfishness or gossip or lying or boasting or the list goes on. It's not any more offensive. Sexual sin is not unforgivable. But because it is sin, it is offensive to God, and therefore there are consequences. So even though our culture presents virtually every sexual expression as acceptable with no strings attached, Christianity is different. It teaches that the only God-created context for sex is within heterosexual marriage. Now let me also remind you that as a Christian, you're not called to try and enforce moral behavior on the world. That's not your calling. Uh, this is the standard for those who follow Jesus. Only the believer has the God-given power and responsibility to behave in a way that pleases God. Whatever culture says... Scripture presents God's moral standard, and to reject it means a rejection of his gift of the Holy Spirit. If you've already messed up, there is supernatural forgiveness that allows you to begin again. So three reasons for believers to run away from sexual immorality. There they are. Next, Paul moves on to the subject of work. Verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. Now, why does Paul address this? Well, the ancient Greeks despised manual labor. By all accounts, high society in Paul's day looked down on those who were involved in physical work. It was demeaning. It was an activity for slaves and for the uncultured. And so a blue-collar worker would, would feel second class, for sure. But the Christian work ethic is that all work has value. All work does. No honest work is degrading. And Jesus modeled that as a carpenter. Paul exemplified that as a tent maker. But what he's addressing here is the fact that in, in Thessalonians, some Christians were idle. They were idle. There was a problem uh, in a, with a group in this church who refused to work. In the next chapter, Paul warns those who are idle. And in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he says, if you won't work, then you should, won't eat either. Now, he's not bashing those who couldn't get a job. He's not bashing those who were unable to work. He was addressing the people who had the ability and the opportunity to work, but were idle. Why? Well, there's always some people who are lazy, right? There are always those who work really, really hard at not working. 
But there was a more specific problem. Some folks were so excited about the return of Jesus that they found work pointless. So Jesus is coming back any minute. Who needs a 401k? Christ is returning from heaven, so why should I punch the clock at the factory today? I believe the second coming is imminent, so I'm going to sit on the porch, crack open a beer, and wait for Jesus. But God designed us to be productive. Christ never intended that we avoid our responsibilities to prepare for his return. If Jesus were returning tomorrow, you should go to work anyway. What happens when we are not putting energy into being productive and responsible? We give energy to the wrong things. Uh, we mind the business of others. <laughs> and we don't live a quiet life. Uh, we interfere in the lives of others. We complain. We, we, when we're not busy enough with our own business, we become busy bodies and we meddle in the affairs of others. About 15 years ago, I noticed a very distinct pattern that started. I went through a whole string of counseling sessions, young people, old people, everybody in between. Every single story included mention of Facebook. That that was an issue. And, and, and social media continues to be a, a subject that comes up in virtually every counseling session I'm ever involved in. Now, social media is just one way that we interact in the lives of others that can be used wrongly, meddling, um, oversharing, prying, spying is all counter to the Christian ethic. Perhaps you think you're just being helpful and social. Uh, evaluate your involvement in the lives of others and your motive for being so interested in what they do. Make sure you haven't crossed over into intrusion. So instead of spending time interfering, believers should be productive, Paul says. So three reasons why you should work, be, be productive. Number one, work is a way to love others. That's Paul's point in verses 9 through 11. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we beg you to love them more and more. The, the, Thess the way the Thessalonian church was to express more and more love was to lead a quiet and productive life. Now, let me affirm that work is not limited to some job where you get a paycheck. You can retire from that job. But work is about being useful. It's serving in a way that benefits other people. Christians are called to actively contribute to the mission of the church. They're called to actively contribute to the well-being of the community. They're called to actively contribute to the good of society. You never retire from those things. A self-focused life is not a Christian life. Work is a way that we can show love. How? Well, by working, we provide for the needs of those who can't provide for themselves. The promise that if you sweat, you will eat is not absolute. A flood might destroy everything you have. Thieves may break in and steal what you've earned. Disability may cut your earning power. And that's just the result of living in a fallen world. But God calls the able-bodied to supply the needs of the helpless. Ephesians 4.28 says, Do honest work so that you can share with those in need. That's a command to believers for other believers. So if your primary reason for work and activity is about making money and achieving status, then your motive is not a Christian one. Rather than building your own kingdom, the larger goal should be your usefulness to others, first to the Christian community and then to society. So let me give you a definition of work that is biblical. And you can apply it to any situation, every situation. Here it is. Work brings order out of chaos for the good of others. So last month, Amy went away for a while to visit our family. While she was gone, I did not make the bed one day. <laughs> not one. 
The morning I got up and she was coming back, I made the bed. I brought order out of chaos for the good of Amy. She came home, immediately stripped the bed and washed the sheets. If you are a teacher, you walk into that classroom to bring order out of chaos for the good of the students. If you're a farmer, you till, plant, cultivate, harvest to bring order out of chaos for the good of society. And whether you're an administrator, a plumber, a contractor, a nurse, a cashier, an engineer, a garbage collector, a volunteer, a law enforcement officer, an usher, a cook, a physician, an accountant, your work is bringing order out of chaos for the good of others. That's the first reason to work. It's a way to love others. Second, work wins wins respect from non-Christians, verse 12, so that your daily life may win respect from outsiders. If you can work and you don't work, if you can be productive and you're not being productive for the good of others, you are damaging the reputation of the gospel. If you can be productive, serve, volunteer, and only live then to please yourself, you're not living up to your identity in Christ. When billionaire T. Boone Pickens turned 85, he said that retirement was when they carried him out in a box, which they have since done. He liked making money and giving it away. Uh, That's commendable. Pickens' work ethic and his philanthropy might be one of the few things that are good in his life at that time. His grandson died of a drug overdose. He was on his fifth marriage after four divorces. His 58-year-old son stated that all the family problems are due to the abusive treatment from Pickens. So Pickens sued his son. All this was going on. Now, I have no idea what Pickens' spiritual beliefs were. But I can't imagine he would have had any respect for someone who did not work hard. If you're retired, God's will is that you continue to be productive. That you continue to bring order out of chaos. Productive people bring credibility to the good news of Jesus. Third reason, work keeps you from dependency, verse 12. So that you will not be dependent on anybody. See, the Christian should be very conscious about being a drain on the common good instead of a contributor. Obviously, there are health factors, there are age factors that can prevent us from certain kinds of productivity. But if you can contribute and you don't contribute, it is absolutely negative. It's a biblical principle. Work to avoid dependency. It's so serious that 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And that applies to one who is able, and there's work available, and yet he will not work then he shouldn't get anything, it says. Again, this is specifically for believers. Paul gives this very practical instruction in light of the Lord's return. Now that, that's what the second half of this chapter is about, which um, by God's grace we'll get to next week. But the whole point of this very practical advice he gives about sex and work is in light of Jesus returning, here's how you should live. Live in a way that pleases God. Don't sit around doing nothing. Don't have a wild orgy. Live morally and productively. And so let me put Paul's teaching about sex and work into one sentence. By avoiding lust and laziness, you prepare for Christ's return. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to ask if your moral behavior and your productivity line up with the will of God. That's not the path to salvation. But for those who are in Christ... You are called to treat sex and work in a way that pleases God. You might think that the second coming of Jesus doesn't really have any impact on your everyday life, but it must. As Jesus told in the story 
In Luke chapter 12, he said, imagine a boss who goes away to a social event and before he leaves, he says to his manager, take care of things while I'm gone. Keep the business running smoothly. Be ready whenever I come back. And Jesus said, imagine if the manager got tired of waiting because his boss didn't return when he expected him to. What if the manager started mistreating all the employees and getting drunk? Jesus said, the manager will be punished when the boss returns. See, through this story, Jesus was urging his followers to always be ready for him as he promised to return. How are we ready? By avoiding lust and laziness. See, here's the bottom line. Your purity and productivity as a believer is the best way to be ready for Jesus to come back. Your purity and productivity. You know, I've helped so many people move. So many people. Not in the last few years. I'm, I'm, I'm taking down my shingle for helping people move. I might pay to have somebody move you instead of helping. So my back is not as good as it used to be. But I've helped so many people move. Usually... They were young families who couldn't afford, or, or elderly widows, typically, who did not have the means to hire anyone. So the hardest part of helping was helping to move somebody who was not prepared to move. It's about 50-50, those who are prepared. So... Very, very frustrating to show up on a beautiful Saturday morning and the folks who are moving have not yet finished packing. The cupboards are full of dishes, toys strewn all over the place, pantry is full of canned goods, the refrigerator is packed, nothing is ready. They're the ones who scheduled the moving day. They're the ones who said, can you come help us on Saturday morning? And they seem caught by surprise. One of the worst examples was Joe and Karen, young couple with some kids and six of us able bodied I was able bodied back then. Able bodied men showed up at seven in the morning on a Saturday. There was no moving truck outside, rented and ready to go. No. Nope. No answer at the door. We thought, well, maybe they moved already. We banged on the door and discovered they were all still in bed. So we stood around while Joe got the kids dressed and Karen took a shower. Then Karen fixed breakfast for the kids while Joe dumped the contents of drawers into boxes and emptied the closets. So we just started carrying the furniture out and sitting it on the driveway. It felt a whole lot more like an eviction than a moving day. Let me tell you that the return of Jesus is a day on God's calendar. We don't know when it is. But Jesus said, never stop being ready. Don't be unprepared. Get rid of the baggage that doesn't please God. If you're a believer, the most practical way you can be ready is to pack away lust and laziness. When you're tempted with immorality, run away because Jesus is coming back. When you're tempted to interfere in the lives of others or to be unproductive and to live for yourself, work hard because Jesus is coming back. Because as Jesus said, Matthew 24, 44, be ready for the Son of Man will return when you don't expect him. Let's pray. Now may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other.
and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. Amen.